0: I not only know that sector, I actually believe in it passionately, and it tends to be the unloved child of education, formal and informal education. It hasn't got the clout, it doesn't have the profile, but it's quietly gone on and done amazing things and transformed people's lives. And I think that it's time is coming. You know, I think we're moving into an age where The only acceptable way forward for anyone who wants to stay employed is
1: lifelong learning. I'm Jeff Cobb.
2: I'm Salisa Steele. And this is the Leading Learning Podcast.
1: Welcome to Episode 262 of the Leading Learning Podcast, the fifth installment in a seven-part series on the surge of the third sector of education, which features a conversation with Nigel Payne. Nigel has led a long career that's intersected with the third sector at many points. He's been involved in corporate learning for over 20 years, and from 2002 to 2006, he headed up the BBC's learning and development operation. He's written three books in the last five years, including Workplace Learning How to Build a Culture of Continuous Employee Development. He co hosts the From Scratch podcast on workplace issues, and he's a presenter for Learning Now TV, a live streamed internet TV channel for those focused on corporate learning and performance. Nigel also teaches in the Chief Learning Officer Doctoral Program at the University of Pennsylvania, so he has a lot to draw on when commenting on the third sector, and he brings a non US perspective. Nigel is based in London and has consulted with companies large and small in over 30 countries. Salisa spoke with Nigel in December 2020.
0: I have a mixed life, I think, a very, very complex sometimes career. But at the moment, I am an author. I've written three books in the last five years, and no doubt there will be another one coming in the next one or two. Um, I present TV. I present Learning Now Television, and I've done that for three or four years. At the moment, we're producing a TV program every twice a month, so every two weeks. Uh, Previously, it was once a month, but because of COVID, and there's a lot of interest in Learning Now Television. And I also do a podcast with Martin Cousins called From Scratch, which comes out Every week, We're up to about 175 at the moment. So there's a lot there. And the great thing about our podcast is it's mercifully short. <laughs> it very rarely goes on longer than 10 minutes. I also work with companies. I do research. Uh, I engage with companies. I speak at conferences. I've spoken at three or four in the last two weeks um, around the world, mostly US and Europe. Uh, but also in Oman. I'm doing some work in the Middle East as well. So I have, I think, an interesting life, uh, engaging with organizations and individuals, trying to think, trying to write stuff down, and generally trying to stay on top of this very strange universe that we've inherited and inhabit over the last year.
2: So tell us a little bit more about the type of work that you do. You know, you mentioned the Learning Now TV, you work with organizations, you have the podcast. Talk a little bit more about what the focus of of all of that is.
0: That's shifting, and um, I'm glad it's shifting in a way. I'm much more interested, and I seem to be asked to do much more about whole organization change and less to do with specialist working only with L&D on narrow L&D issues. Because I think the world is changing. I actually think that's a, a trajectory that everyone will, will get involved in. So I'm helping organizations manage technology, uh, I- encourage and develop a, more a culture of learning rather than specific learning programs and courses, and help them, I guess, become more agile become more adept at managing their own change and help them reassert direction, purpose and their role in the world, I, I think probably would sum it up. So it's bigger picture, broader, broader activities, how I would s- see my own trajectory over the last couple of years.
2: So you were more maybe more Focus specifically on the learning component, and now you're seeing it sort of expand more broadly into that culture overall within these organizations.
0: Yeah, and that's my books as well. The first book was called The Learning Challenge, which is very much about how you can optimize the opportunities for L&D. The second book was about leadership, and there I was really worried. It was based around a problem, which was that why does so much leadership development have no impact whatsoever? everyone has a lovely time and we wave goodbye and nothing changes. So I wanted to find out pinpoint what makes some L&D transformative and the rest nothing. And so that took me outside L&D and into the nature of the organization and I tried to identify the factors which make leadership development either likely to be successful or likely not to be and then the final book about learning culture I realized that unless you actually start fixing things in the cultural environment of the organization you you can kiss goodbye a learning culture it's just not going to happen so I I I kind of stepped right outside L&D so that that was my own movement over the last five years and and in the current climate I've spent lots and lots of time with L&D leaders saying, do not just see this as an opportunity to shovel more courses down people's throats. Take a holistic view. What is going on inside your organization? How can you help? How can you partner, work alongside, advise, guide, not control your own little domain? So that's been been my journey. And I've got a lot of people, I think, coming on it with me. One of the joys of my life is that I teach at the University of Pennsylvania on a doctoral program that I actually helped create um, more than 15 years ago. So I've been with it for a long time. And it's designed for those involved in learning in organizations. And over the years, it's gone from being very specialist to chief learning officers, to having a range of people who touch on the talent agenda in organizations, big and small, the military, not for profits but it's a doctoral program that's unique because it engages with that diversity of need for human development, essentially. And one of the things I've learned from that is that if you think you've got it, you know, I understand this sector, I understand the issues, then you're being naive. Because every time you think you've got it nailed down, some other dimension appears. And luckily, the program has been innovative enough to reflect those needs and to keep evolving, um, it, 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 we kind of iterate the curriculum every time we run any of the the talk blocks, and the research that's come out of it has been absolutely fascinating, very very varied. But there's a kind of lesson there that if you, if you see the that clo doctoral program as a kind of ecosystem in its own right you know the lessons from it have been that you stick to the knitting you know it is a doctorate from the university of pennsylvania that is a a driving force and a driving motivation for many of the the students but in order to get there and maintain that faith with your community we've had to learn relearn evolve and try to anticipate what people really want rather than assume that we know we are the university of Pennsylvania. Or we know that is, that is naive and would be ridiculous. So I think that's a general lesson there for me that, that I approach the world with humility and with a readiness to learn uh, and with a belief that if you take my three words, if you listen, understand and act You will deliver something better than if you just simply assume, uh, act without thinking, and insist that everyone comes along with you. So, these things are are very important and increasingly so. You know, that this program will change faster as it goes forward, not slower, because that's the nature of the world.
2: So, you and I are talking as part of a podcast series that we're doing on the third sector of education, that sector that's made up of the providers who serve adult, lifelong learners after they finish their formal degree-granting education. And so I'd be curious to know, you know, where do you interact or have you interacted with that third sector of education, professionally and, and personally, if you'd like as well?
0: I'll tell you a little secret, Teresa, and that is that that's where I grew up. You know, I, I grew up in that sector, so I spent um, a good few years of my life working in university extramural, uh, what would be called community college uh, education in the US, plus in voluntary organizations. So I engaged with individuals and communities in a way that I haven't done for a large number of years. So I, I not only know that sector, I actually believe in it passionately, and it tends to be the unloved child of education formal and informal education it hasn't got the clout it doesn't have the profile but it's quietly gone on and done amazing things and transformed people's lives and i think that its time is coming you know i think we're moving into an age where the only acceptable way forward for anyone who wants to stay employed is lifelong learning and lifelong learning is an interaction between formal education as in school, college, and informal education as in me and you talking together and learning, but also into those providers who can offer something outside the workflow that will help individuals engage more accurately, give them the tools and the mindsets to build their own careers inside organisations. And without them, without those... Uh, organizations, individuals, small companies, voluntary organizations, charities, whatever they might be, without them very, very active, we will never get to that goal of building universal uh, lifelong education because you don't, most people don't work in large companies that have got huge learning infrastructures. The truth is that most people work in very small organizations who don't have those resources. Where do they turn? this is your third sector it's very important
2: and so that third sector as you were just talking about is made up of many different types of providers those associations the corporate L&D, the academic continuing education uh, units training companies solo entrepreneurs all of those folks and and so if you kind of imagine a, a continuum you know and at one end we have hodgepodge and at the other end we have you know partnership you know what's your sense of sort of the third sector's Image of itself you know are they are we aware of the other players in there um, you know on that hodgepodge to partnership spectrum? where are we
0: well I, I think you it's actually a highway and we're driving from hodgepodge to uh-huh. partnership and uh, again I think that there's a massive incentive now and uh, organizations who didn't see that sector as having anything to offer are uh, trying to build relationships. um, Individuals who didn't see that as being helpful for them are starting to engage. So I I think that it's like the pieces are starting to align. If we've thrown them up in the air and they've landed anywhere, they're starting to kind of move under their own steam and we will end up with a pattern of much clearer provision. Because one of the problems with this sector is that uh, for many people, it looks totally confusing. Mm. You know, where do I start? Who do I trust who wants my everyone wants your money, but what are you going to get for your money? And that's where, where we need to put some effort is not to create lots of new providers, but to organize and build partnerships and build standards and build acceptability in terms of um, how you approach the the role, the terms and conditions that you offer learners and all of those things. So accepted, approved direction and an alignment around the different strengths and weaknesses of providers so that for an organization employing people or for individuals in work, they can see opportunity everywhere and not just confusion everywhere. It's it's a very important trajectory, I think.
2: I think that point about needing more clarity and really helping learners navigate that sector really makes a lot of sense to me.
1: If you're looking for a partner to help you help learners navigate the sometimes confusing lifelong learning landscape, check out our sponsor for this series.
2: For nearly 20 years, Blue Sky eLearn has been transforming the way organizations deliver virtual events and educational content. Blue Sky's customized, cutting edge solutions connect hundreds of organizations to millions of learners worldwide. These include their award winning learning management system, Path LMS. Webinar and live streaming services for short events to multi day virtual conferences, and learning strategy and development solutions. These robust, easy to manage solutions allow organizations to easily organize, track, and monetize educational content.
1: We're truly grateful to Blue Sky eLearn for helping to make this series possible, and we encourage you to find out more at blueskyelearn.com. Now, Back to the conversation with Salisa and Nigel.
2: Our view at Leading Learning is that this third sector has been growing in size and importance in the relatively recent past. Um, so if you agree with that assessment, what do you think is contributing to the growth of the third sector?
0: It's, it's basically a need. Uh, that, that There is an enormous pressure now on people who left school without qualifications, who are in a workplace where it looks like their job is going to come to an end sooner rather than later. Those people, there is a thirst and a craving to acquire new skills that will keep them employable. Uh, There are lots of opportunities for people who are maybe even post-workforce to keep their brain active, to learn new things. For people who are in mixed mode, they may have Children at home, they may have a part time job, but they're also the third part of that is acquiring new knowledge and new skills and new competence to get them back into the workforce at a certain time. So that that there's, I think, an acceptance. And finally, I think that the discarding of this crazy idea that you stop learning at 18 or 21 or 23 or whatever it might be, and for the rest of your life, you're lumbered with the portfolio that you acquired in those years. There's a, a general belief that we can learn, we can change, we can acquire new skills and knowledge. So it, it, it's a, partly a social pressure. It's partly an economic and technological pressure, the fact we all have access to everything. You and I are talking across thousands of miles as if you were in the same room as I am, and I think that's absolutely wonderful. But there's also a, a, a realisation through the work of neuroscientists and through people like Robert Keegan, that adults continue to develop. They don't, you don't stop developing at 18. Adults continue to develop. And if they want to really fulfill their potential, their potential is always, always tied up with learning and learning more and learning different. And sometimes discarding old assumptions and old ideas in order to embrace what's new and exciting, and what points them in the right direction.
2: So you were just speaking to the fact that the, there's a great need for this third sector that, um, that's really driving the growth there. And so if you think about the major opportunities that are there, that are available for those working in the third sector, what do you see as those major opportunities?
0: It depends what it depends what the needs are. Basically, whatever whatever need there is, there is an opportunity sitting there somewhere. But one of the problems is trying to find that opportunity and, and uh, align it. But if you look at technology, the number of people doing things that used to be called MOOCs, but we don't really call them that anymore. That it's become such a generalist term. But basically, people who learn online asynchronously or synchronously. The opportunity to go to places, well, in the days when you could actually work together, and we will be able to do that at some point soon, but to go together to different kinds of spaces. There are lots of third spaces, new kinds of uh, work, learn spaces emerging in all our cities that allow people to come together in different kinds of community. And the flexibility to combine what time you have with the opportunity that is open to you. So I can see a world where people do learn online on their own. They read stuff. They engage in discussions and forums, and they partner in small teams. I can see people going to a center and reinforcing that learning. So I think it's a very mixed mode, and I I, I worry sometimes when providers – lust after single mode learning i think you've got to get into multi mode learning whatever you do and however you do it because that is the nature of the world and also everybody is better equipped you know i don't know anybody apart from my brother who has not got a smartphone and i can't believe that anyone who's got a smartphone hasn't seen that change their life and put them in touch with uh, with opportunities ideas ways of doing things that they couldn't have done before so you need to galvanize that for learning i think i can see a lot more apps that work on your phone work on your ipad work on your laptop sync seamlessly operate in real time to keep you informed So you and I can talk now. I can walk out and go somewhere else, open up my phone, continue the conversation, record. You send me a recording on my laptop. I go and pick it up on my iPad. I do some editing on my iPad. It's back on my laptop. I send it to you. All of that in real time. Those are fabulous opportunities, I think, for creating a way of stimulating and satisfying curiosity. Because I think if we can create a world of curious people, our problems are over. Because they will work out their own way to meet their curious their curious needs to satisfy that curiosity. The problem is we've got far too many people who see curiosity as something dangerous or something that is kind of scary and something that isn't really for them. I, I think we, we will have to encourage people to be more curious and begin to meet their own learning needs. Because the other point that relates directly to what you're saying is no provider can come up with all the answers. Mm. It's got to be individuals saying to providers, this is what I want. This is what I need. They will take what they need, not have stuff pushed to them that they may or may not need. So it's a a very much more exciting environment than when I started working where, you know, I, I was delivering classes in communities face-to-face, because there were no other options. And if people were on shift work or they were sick, then they, they missed it all. And I began in, in in the 80s with packaging learning. You know, I was one of the early pioneers in what we called in the UK open learning. And uh, that be- that went online as quickly as it was possible to do. So I was one of the early uh, workers, not with e-learning as such, but of learning online. Before the concept of e-learning even came together. And I saw then how important that was going to be. Once the machines were fast enough, capable enough, that they were ubiquitous enough to allow them to offer real choices to people. And I had to wait maybe 15 years or something for that to happen. But it certainly happened now. So I'm I'm very optimistic about the possibilities going forward.
2: Well, I hear you're your passion and your enthusiasm and uh, your own curiosity coming through. And so that's, you know, all on kind of the opportunity side um, in terms of the, the threats to the third sector, you know, what do you see as the, the major challenges or threats that exist?
0: Well, there, I think there are big players who would like to gobble mm-hmm. it all up. Um, I'm not going to mention names, but there are private, private universities, large companies who really don't want small organizations nibbling away at their business and they will try to become ubiquitous and uh, universal. And I'm, I think we do need big players, but I also like to have an ecosystem where there are small providers because small providers have got uh, first advantage. You know, They're the ones who move quickly, see opportunities rush in. And if someone rushes in, finds a, a great medium, only to be eaten up by one of the big people 18 months down the track. I don't think that's a particularly healthy way to go forward. You could argue that the market is growing at a a pace beyond the capabilities of any handful of organisations to manage, and I hope so. But I think there are dangers. And if we look in social media, for example, we can see how very, very big players whose names will be completely off my lips, but maybe begin with F&B, that they have gobbled up the biggest competitors and got even bigger as a result of that. I I wouldn't want that to happen in the third sector. I really want plurality and choice because I think it's very, very important. And I don't think we can anticipate people's needs going forward or the challenges of this world going forward. We need operators to see something move fast and have, you know, first first mover advantage, it's very, very important.
2: I think that's an excellent point, this idea that, you know, we have such a diversity of needs that learners are going to be bringing and, and looking for solutions for that it's very hard to f- find those answers for learners in a single entity, or it does seem dangerous to potentially, you know, have it all locked up in a few big players. So it's a, a very interesting point. What do you see as the future for the third sector? Do you think it's going to be continued growth, uh, disruption, whether that's positive or or negative disruption, uh, waning importance, something else? How would you characterize it?
0: Uh, I would see continuing growth and massive disruption. Uh, So I don't know whether I can have my cake and eat it in answering your question, but I, I absolutely see the needs to it will be accelerating as you know AI comes into the workforce. As we find n- not only new, new ways of working but new products, whole new sectors will emerge, and we will need people who can um, do the jobs of the future, not necessarily the jobs of the past. They will need new skills, new attitudes. They will need to enable themselves and and feel confident in their ability as learners. One of the things that, for me anyway, the absolute heart of a growth mindset is I can learn, that belief that you can learn. And once you've got that belief, then your needs are insatiable. There will always be things to learn and always provide us. But I do think that the disruption will occur, that we need a more regulated, ordered, clear Opportunities laid down, so we know where to go. There are some standards. We can get rid of the cowboys uh, if they're there. The, the corruption, the people who just want your money and offer you nothing for it. We have to clean it, clean up the environment so that it is ordered, but still full of opportunity and still available for entrepreneurs and and first movers. So I I, I cannot believe that in ten years' time. We'll be talking again, and, and we'll say, "Well, that was we got that wrong, didn't we?" You know, the whole sector's disappeared. I don't believe that. You know, the, how what will our world be like? What will the where will the jobs come from in ten years' time? Neither of us know, but if we have that growth mindset and the providers who can help people make the leaps going forward, then we'll have a healthy world, healthy society, and a healthy amount of learning in ten years. So that sector is absolutely critical. For, out, for all our futures, essentially.
2: So what words of advice um, could be of, uh, it, you know, caution, or it could be, you know, um, words of, of kind of what to pursue? Um, what would you think that those in the third sector should be doing to thrive?
0: I, I'll give you three things that I think are absolutely fundamental. The first one is think Mindset, Uh, sorry, think ecosystem. Think how can I build together components that will meet the needs of my learners, and some of those will be new components. Um, So, ecosystems are really important, and we operate in an ecosystem. Our lives are increasingly based in ecosystems, and therefore, we don't want just one product that tries to do everything for us. The second thing is help that growth mindset. So, help people believe in themselves as learners and spend a little time enabling people to learn as well as giving them things to do. I call that the balance of productive skills and generative skills. Generative skills are the kind of core skills that help people learn other skills that are crucial to them and give them the confidence to move forward. Curiosity sits there in the generative skills category. So recognize that generative skills are just as important as productive skills. And the third thing is, I've got this set which says, listen, understand, act. So get out there, listen to what people are saying, try to understand where the needs are emerging, and then act on that intelligence. Don't say, I've got a neat little operation here, it's doing quite well, I'll just be happy with that for the next 40 years. That is dangerous, I think. You, in the third sector, have to evolve and change and rethink and be disrupted and and be able to deal with that disruption, just like everyone else. You are not somehow exempt from all the flows in the rest of the world. So jump into the flow and embrace that. And it will carry you forward and it will help you stay successful, maybe doing some things that are quite different to what you would have done before, but nevertheless will help you be more successful, bigger, more enduring, and it will help you stay relevant going forward. So they will be my three tips, and I think they're, they're quite important. They're quite fundamental tips.
2: I love uh, especially your distinction between the productive and generative skills, and I do think that it makes a ton of sense for providers working in that third sector to really focus on on both because you know like we're saying there's so much confusion um because there's so many options out there and just helping learners even navigate the space that seems sort of in line with those kind of generative skills the the curiosity getting clear on what it is you need to learn so that then you are equipped as a learner to to better evaluate the options that are out there I know that learning technologies and and technology's role in supporting learning is an area of expertise for you. And so I'm curious to know, how do you see learning technologies shaping the third sector now? And how might future technological advances uh, shape it in the future?
0: Uh, Well, I think that's the million dollar question. Uh, Technological advances are shaping that sector. Absolutely, certainly, they are shaping that sector from ev- every dimension. From reaching out to your customers, um, meeting their needs, uh, assessing their competence, uh, maybe certifying or, or or credentialing those individuals, um, continuing to develop learning products, working on the curriculum. Uh, working on instructional design, every single one of those areas is completely disrupted by new technologies. And I, I would say again, look at the main trends and look at how you can adapt what you're doing to take advantage of some of those main trends. I've already mentioned, for example, apps. You know that that people live in an app world now rather than big software packages. Uh, people do not want to spend their time on a desktop when they've got a phone and a tablet and everything else. They want to be able to work seamlessly between all three. If you can't do that, start getting worried. And use those technologies like the one we're using at the moment, Skype. Use those technologies to full advantage and they're getting better and they're managing groups of people as well as one-on-one individuals so much more professionally and technologically Uh, competently than they were before. So I I just can't imagine that you can do what you do much longer without embracing those technological changes. You might feel that you're much more comfortable sitting in a room with a group of people. Uh, There's nothing wrong with that, but don't see that as the beginning, the middle and the end of what you do. And the more you can extend that, the more you can create learning opportunities going forward, the more effective your output will be and the more engaged your learners will be with you.
2: So I'd like to ask too about data and data analytics for organizations in the third sector um, that are really serious about showing the value of their offerings. um, What would you recommend? What are some of the key activities in terms of evaluation to help demonstrate that impact?
0: I think, Data analytics are really important uh that, that anything you use will have data coming out the back of it, and um there's there's probably more data than you can shake a stick at but The problem is that most people don't really know what to do with that data apart from in very crude and clunky ways you know they collect number of hours uh, who completed this and what time it, it, they're almost irrelevant those things. What you need to do is use data to focus on levels of engagement and impact going forward. So I think you need to work out the actual difference you make in the world. And that is easily doable now. You can track that and you can monitor it. And that's what you should do. But there's also a huge amount of opportunity. For example, Google's analytics on websites that is free, and it, that data pours out. Someone said that something only about 9% of sites use Google Analytics. The others just don't switch it on. That's crazy. It may be, I hope it's more than that now. Uh, if you look at the data coming off the back of uh, things like Microsoft Teams, huge amounts of data. And even if you look at the Microsoft Office suite and the, uh, the amount of analytics that now relates around The Microsoft apps, they've done that because they see the advantages of making sure your Outlook links to your Word, links to your PowerPoint and and bring all that together. So you can create dashboards and you can monitor your learners in a way that isn't spooky. And there are some dangers, which I completely accept, but monitor and, and therefore to be able to be accurately work out what works and what doesn't. Work out how you can help your learners be more effective, and often in advance of them even realizing it, you can deal with and obliterate any problems. That's the real world, Joe. You know, you've got GE engines flying in aeroplanes. Once, when aeroplanes used to fly, you remember those days. <laughs> Whoa, a bit wonderful. When those the, those GE engines are pouring so much data back to GE that they can tell before there's a failure. And they replace the part before it fails because they've got the data to know when the part is about to fail. Now, we need the same thing. If they can do it for jet engines, we can do it for human beings. Before someone gets in difficulty, we need to step in and correct, not after they've had a miserable time or after they've even worse, after they've failed, because that will seriously damage them psychologically often. So I I think data analytics, everyone has to become familiar and understand the amount they can do with very little effort. You don't need to be a data scientist to make use of these things. They're all there for you. They, they lie there waiting for you to grab them. And the sad thing is not enough people grab, reach out and grab them.
2: I appreciated the, the comment about the use of data, data analytics potentially to help kind of rescue learners who are in need. I think so, so often we can focus on Sort of after the completion of the learning event, um, and sort of looking at what happens after that point, but this idea of it really being a, a potential for course correction, so that then that learner
0: yeah that's the old yeah the, the old model was wait till afterwards and go, "Oh, that was a disaster, or you know, <laughs> half of them have failed, uh, and we shrug our shoulders and move on, or maybe we' we'll do something for the next group the, the, the real The real test and the, and the, the real cutting edge stuff is. Looking at the data as it's coming out in the middle of everything and be able to make those small corrections. And often it is only small corrections. And that will help uh, people come through seamlessly, almost without them realizing that there's been a little bit of manipulation in the background somewhere. You know, a few wires being tied together or cut, you know, wherever it might be. And that's how it should be. Just as when we use products, we have no idea what's going on in the background to seamlessly make them work for us. We just accept that they work. It's kind of like learning us to catch up. You know, we, 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 we buy, a, spend a lot of money on a phone and we expect it to work and we expect everything to integrate. And we, we get very impatient if teeny things go wrong with the interface. And yet learning, we accept the colossal things to go wrong all the time as if that doesn't matter. It does matter. It has to be a seamless quality experience just like every other increasing every other experiences in our lives just look at the, the the big players and their obsession with getting it right for the customer and i think learning has to be obsessed with getting it right for the customer too
2: I'm based in the U.S., um, as are most of the organizations that I end up interfacing with and working with. I know you're familiar with the U.S., but you're based in London. And so I'm particularly interested in your non-U.S. perspective. Um, you know, Are there any footnotes or nuances you might add to, to earlier comments about how the third sector looks different outside of the U.S.?
0: It does. It depends. Again, there's no way of saying there's the US and there's the rest, uh, that each country is different. You know, For example, in Germany, where they have a very much more advanced, controlled, regulated vocational education system, it looks very, very different from the US as it does from the UK, and in every shade in between Germany uh, and the US model. But I, I think that once you get outside the US, what you do see much more is, is government intervention and regulation, much, m- much more an attempt to ensure standards, clarify, uh, set competence frameworks and skill profiles that are universally accepted and are the currency for moving forward for individuals and organizations. That's not so evident in the U.S., where it tends to be state by state, often company by company. You know, companies drive drive standards in in many sectors, and you can see that. So I'm not saying that one is good and one is bad. It's just different. Um, And I don't really see them coming together. I think that in the face of uh, the disruption which is on its way, uh, those uh, countries where there has is a large government sector intervening, they will intervene more to make it work in the u s where there is less government intervention. they will encourage companies to get their act together and and supply the well meet the the supply needs um and to meet up with the demand so uh, I think there is there are big differences and there are very few global players you know there's a lot of local players the people you work with all work in in the U.S. don't tend to go outside, maybe even work in, you're in North Carolina, maybe they, they don't work in other states because the U.S. is huge and you can live pretty well fo- concentrating your focus on North Carolina, for example, which is a highly industrialized and advanced state and in, in other parts of the world would be a country and could be a country. And I think if California was independent, it would be the eighth largest, last largest economy in the world. So there's a difference in scale, but everyone faces the same problems. And I don't know any country now trying to put up barriers and say, well, we'll just control, regulate, exclude. That's how we'll survive. No one's saying that anymore because it's not true. The the waves of change and disruption are global waves. And we can have presidents and prime ministers and all that can say we come first put our country first. But the truth is that most, the vast, vast majority of countries rely incredibly profoundly on everything working together. We're enmeshed in this network of technology and skills and and production, and we can't manage without each other. And I, I think that most Countries, most organisations and most people in the third sector will see that need, that what they're actually doing in their different ways are preparing people for the global global competition and global movements and global trends. I think that's inevitable. We're not going to go back to small countries or small states, um, although there have been some tendencies in that direction in the last year, and particularly brought on by the pandemic. You, know, you can either pull up the shutters or embrace the world. And I think embracing the world is always going to be more successful in the long run than pulling, pulling down the shutters.
2: Well, wonderful. Thank you so much for your generosity with your time and your expertise. I really enjoyed the uh, insights you had to share.
0: Salisa, so it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. And I really appreciate the opportunity to engage with you and to engage with your community. Long may you flourish.
1: With over 25 years of experience in corporate learning, Nigel Payne is a regular speaker, writer, and broadcaster on the topics of development, technology, and leadership. His company focuses on building great workplaces. You can learn more about Nigel, his work, and his company at nigelpayne.com and he welcomes connecting with Leading Learning podcast listeners through email, LinkedIn, and Twitter.
2: You'll find links to Nigel's website and to his social media accounts in the show notes at leadinglearning.com slash episode 262, along with a transcript and other resources related to this conversation.
1: You'll also find options for subscribing to the podcast at leadinglearning.com slash episode 262. To make sure you don't miss the upcoming episodes, we encourage you to subscribe. And subscribing also helps us get some data on the impact of the podcast.
2: We'd be grateful if you would take a minute to rate us on Apple Podcasts. Jeff and I personally appreciate it, and reviews and ratings help the podcast show up when people search for content on leading a learning business. Go to leadinglearning.com slash Apple to leave a review and rating.
1: And we encourage you to learn more about the sponsor for this series by visiting blueskyelearn.com.
2: Lastly, please spread the word about Leading Learning. In the show notes at leadinglearning.com slash episode 262, there are links to find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook.
1: Thanks again, and see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast.